from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today, we're going to spend some time talking about tropical trees and aggressive dogs. And if you think we can't build some pretty fascinating connections between those two subjects of biological study, then you probably haven't been listening to our show. But that's okay, there's still time, just stay tuned. The tropical ecologist and the microbiologist, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. To begin today's program, I'd like to ask you to take an imaginary walk through a tropical forest. Maybe you've been to such a place, and if so, this is going to be really easy. But even if you haven't, you can probably still picture a place like that. Okay, you got an image in your head? I want you to hone in on something. Pick out one tree. And then shift your gaze just a little bit to the left or the right, just until you get to the next tree. Is it the same kind of tree or is it a different tree? Now, hold on to that answer because I've got another question. Have you ever met a really, really nice pit bull? If you're a dog person, you probably know that pit bulls, even though they often have a really bad reputation, can be some of the sweetest, most even-tempered dogs in the world. But what's the difference between a passive dog and one that's more aggressive? Today on the program, we're going to introduce you to two researchers whose work might help us answer these questions. And as always, at the end of the show, we'll introduce them to one another in a bid to go deeper and maybe build a few connections between two very different fields of research. Joining us in studio is Dale Forrester, a doctoral candidate at the University of Utah who just scored his first ever first authorship of a paper in the journal Science. Not bad. In that paper, he and his colleagues propose a partial solution to the question of why similar species rarely grow next to one another in tropical forests. Dale Forrester, welcome to Undisciplined. Thank you. Good morning. Also with us today from Oregon State University, where she is also a doctoral candidate, is Nicole Kirkhoff. She also just scored her first ever first authorship on a paper that explores the relationship between the aggressiveness of dogs and the microbes that are in their guts. Nicole Kirkhoff, thanks for being here. Hi, Matthew. Thanks for having me on. Let's start today by visiting a rainforest. That is the sound of the gray-headed chakalaka, just one of many sounds you'd hear if you visited a rainforest in Panama, and that's where my first guest and his team went to try to answer a mystery of nature, the one I alluded to earlier in the program. Why is it that species that are similar don't grow close together in a tropical forest? Dale Forrester, I've spent a fairly good deal of time in various tropical forests, but I hadn't even thought about this question until I read your study. It turns out, though, that this is a really old question. What makes it such an alluring question? Since the earliest explorers went there, they were baffled when they just saw a innumerable number of new things that they hadn't experienced from Europe and just trying to understand, wow, first of all, how many are there? Second, why are there so many? I think the reason why it's been so hard to answer this question is because ecology and nature are complex and nothing's more complex than the rainforest in that it's just so many different factors coming together kind of in harmony or in competition and the end result is this amazing diversity we see. But trying to kind of pull apart the pieces and understand it from a mechanistic level is extremely hard and people have been doing it for hundreds of years. What you were trying to get to the bottom of is this question of how is it that 
in the midst of this great diversity, when you look around, you don't see very many things, in this case, trees that are very similar, even though it, it sort of makes sense. I mean, at least for me, from an evolutionary point of view, right? Like the, the resources needed to grow an organism in a certain way are all right here. And yet organisms that are very similar don't end up growing next to one another. That's the bottom line of the question, right? Yeah, absolutely. So there are two competing hypotheses on what causes this phenomenon, which is called negative density dependence. Can you explain the two competing hypotheses? Sure, absolutely. So negative density dependence is when a species is growing next to each other or in high density, we find that it ends up doing worse. And kind of as things grow, have a higher density, they end up dying more and growing less. And so in order to understand that, classic theory in ecology tells us that you need to be different in order to be able to utilize the same simple resources in multiple ways. So all plants, they need light, they need water, and they need nutrients to survive. And so if we want to try to divide up the rainforest into many different ways of dividing those simple resources, we might be able to explain why different species can cohabitate in the same environment. So some might be a light-loving species. Maybe they do really well when a tree falls and they grow very quickly. Some might do really well in parts of the forest where there's a ton of water and they have adaptations to be able to deal with that excess water. But at the end of the day, it's hard to imagine how we can come up with over 600 different ways of dividing those four simple resources. And so that's where the second hypothesis of natural enemies. So if we start to broaden our idea of what resources plants use, a major resource they use is their ability to defend themselves. So they're under constant bombardment from tons of different pests. So if we think about the same idea of we need to divide up how we how we live in the rainforest, but now we're just going to include the enemy sphere, it opens up tons and tons of possibilities of different ways of adapting yourself to combat those enemies. And then to go about trying to figure out which of these potential answers was more likely to be correct. You looked at a few variants of the tropical Inga tree. Is that right? The Inga tree? Tell me, <laughs> okay. Tell me about this tree and why it was such a good candidate for testing these competing theories. We In my lab, we study Inga as kind of a model system for understanding how all trees in the rainforest are adapting. The, the nice thing about Inga is it's, it's extremely abundant. So that's one really great benefit, but it's also extremely diverse. So Inga, at its maximum diversity in the rainforest, has upwards of 50 different species that are all in the same community. They're all within sometimes feet of each other and sometimes you know, within, let's say, a kilometer squared. We can find 50 different species. And then using this data, how did you go about trying to answer this question? You, you collected all this data about these Inga. Mm -hmm. And then was it, is it just math at that point? The, the scary part and the beautiful part about working on a question that has uh, intrigued ecologists for 100 years is a lot of people have tried to answer this question and a lot of people have used a lot of creative ways to do so. And so the whole basis of this study was we've seen different people answering this question. Um, and one way in which they've done it is they've showed that if you're a tree growing in the rainforest and you're surrounded by closely related species based on the phylogeny, you see a negative density dependent pattern in that you do 
do worse when you're surrounded by closely related neighbors. And so what, what I thought is that if we can use the same idea, but rather than look at closely related neighbors, let's break it apart. Let's look at these traits that we've collected and kind of dive in further and look at, is it the fact that they're closely related in their defense traits, or is it the fact that they're closely related in the way they use resources? So I basically just use the same math that people have used for a long time, but just subbing in these traits. And what you came up with, what your conclusion is, is that it's it's maybe not the resources. It might be more the the herbivores. Yeah. So when we looked at these different traits, we looked at nine in total, four of which were resource acquisition traits, five of which were defense traits. We found that similarity in chemistry was a primary driver. So if you were a tree growing next to other congeners or closely related species that were similar in their chemistry, you tend to die more and grow less. And the other one we looked at was the herbivore space. So we spent many resource years in the rainforest collecting as a team, collecting hundreds of different uh, herbivores and just trying to quantify how similar are two different species based on the community of herbivores that you find on them. And so are these two things, I mean, I, I assume these two things are related. The chemistry of the tree attracts the herbivores, right? And so if you have a lot of trees of a similar chemistry together, that's like a big breakfast buffet. Yeah, absolutely. So these ideas have been, you know, they're certainly not my own. This uh, they originally proposed this hypothesis of the Jansen-Connell hypothesis in, in 1970 and 71. People have long thought that it must be natural enemies, it must be insects that are driving this. But what has been hard is being able to actually gather the empirical data to show that. What I think was exciting about this study is that we have the data on herbivore similarity. We've gone out there and collected individual species of herbivores and many individuals of them, and we, have, we can show that these patterns are consistent with this long-held hypothesis. That's Dale Forrester, whose recent paper titled Herbivores as Drivers of Negative Density Dependence in Tropical Forest Saplings was just published in the journal Science. Dale, can you stick around for a bit and listen in as I chat with our next guest? Absolutely. Okay, let's talk about... Dogs. That, of course, is the epic and unmistakable introduction to George Clinton's Atomic Dog, which famously asked the question, why must I feel like that? Why must I chase the cat? Well, our next guest thinks that if you happen to be a dog, then aggression toward cats and other animals might not have anything to do with the dog in you. It might, in fact, have something to do with the microbes in you. Nicole Kirkhoff, this study floored me, and even though we've been learning a lot about the impact of gut microbes on all sorts of areas of our lives and the lives of other creatures, I never considered the potential of a relationship between gut flora and aggression. How did you even think to look for this? Yeah, so there's actually quite a lot of emerging evidence in the gut microbial field that gut microbes, so bacteria, fungi, viruses in your gastrointestinal tract may be playing a role in some of the host behavior or certain affective disorders, for example, anxiety and depression. And so we kind of came together and considered how gut microbes might be playing a role in other affective disorders, for example, aggression in dogs. And we decided to take a look at aggression in dogs because it's such a wide-ranging issue that affects a lot of dogs and their human owners. 
So normally when you want to answer a research question, I, I feel like most people, they go instantly to the mice. Who was it in your team of researchers who went, you know what, we've got a humane society just down the street. I, I gather it was a humane society that you went to for help. It was an animal welfare organization, and that actually came about between a collaborator who's also an author on the paper, Dr. Monique Udell. She's an animal behaviorist, and she often works with canines, so dogs and wolves, and considers a lot how their behaviors come about. So she was able to uh, hook up a collaboration for us with an animal welfare agency, and they happened to have a collection of dogs that were actually rescued from a dog fighting organization. And so they had behavioral evaluations and had access to dog fecal samples and were willing to provide us with some of those samples. So I was going to ask why you look specifically at pities, but I think you just answered the question because these were actually dogs that had been rescued from a fighting ring and they use pit bulls for that. That's correct. And you already had the fecal samples on hand. They had already collected the fecal samples, so you didn't have to do that part of the deal. Right. So I personally didn't collect the fecal samples. They sent them to me on ice. So I did have to interact with them while I was extracting a lot of the bacteria from them, but I didn't collect them myself. But the beauty of this, though, is that to begin this test, we basically just had to wait for these dogs to do what dogs do, because the little creatures that that people need to test for when we're studying gut microbes, they, they come out. Yeah, a fecal sample is a good way to get a sample that is representative of some of the gut bacterial that you find in the colon of vertebrates. We opted for this because it's a pretty non-invasive way to just get a sample and it doesn't harm the dogs in any way. We can just pick up their poop like any dog owner would and that's why we decided to go with that. So what microbes are we looking for? So we did sort of a exploratory study. So we were able to take a look at all the bacteria that were present in these fecal samples. And then when we get that data, we can analyze it on the other end to determine some of the more interesting bacterial species that we find in these fecal samples and then what we know about those species and then kind of speculate on why those particular species might be present in these dogs. And the microbes you're looking at, I gather they exist to some extent in pretty much all the dogs, but in in pretty vastly different amounts. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So it's we're not only looking at what kind of bacteria and microbes are in these dog guts, but also their abundance. And what you found is that there were some species of microbes that were found in greater abundance in the more aggressive dogs, or maybe there was a lack of those. I don't know. Like, what was the correlation? So that's where some of these interesting patterns emerge in terms of, you know, what bacteria were there and how many were there. So, for example, there is a bacterial genus called uh, Bacteroidetes, and we found that this 
bacterial lineage was actually more abundant in the non-aggressive dogs that we sampled. And this is interesting because certain bacteriorities species have been implicated in their ability to modulate certain other behaviors that are indicative of other affective disorders, for example, anxiety. So these species have the ability to, at least these were in mice studies, they can decrease the type of anxiety-like behaviors that these mice are exhibiting. Okay, so this was a relatively small sample, so the findings are still a bit preliminary, but man, the implications to what you've found could be tremendous. I mean, I don't think I'm alone in having long held the belief that if a dog is aggressive, that the problem is either the dog itself or more commonly, in my opinion, the dog's owner. But there's a chance that belief is either wrong or really limited in perspective, right? Right. So this is really exciting. And there has been a good amount of work put into dog aggression. But as many dog owners can attest, there's still a lot of issues in terms of treatment and really understanding all the underlying causes for what is causing aggression. I'd like to emphasize that I don't think that gut microbes are going to be the only factor that we should consider when we're talking about dog aggression. But based on my study, it indicates that gut microbes are another component of aggression in dogs that we should be really considering. And what are the next steps for this research? What do you guys want to do next? And what's the question you want to answer next? So I really think the next step is to see if this is a consistent pattern that we're seeing between aggressive and non-aggressive dogs. So this could mean looking at one different breed type. We only looked at uh, pit bulls for this study. So I think we should take a chance to look at other to see if we see this differences in gut microbes in other breeds. Also, there are other types of aggression. So this specifically looked at aggression towards other dogs and like aggression in dogs can manifest in different ways. So looking at other types of aggression, I think is really important. Also, trying to get a sense of exactly how gut microbes are associated with aggression. So I think those are some areas that we can really expand on in the future. That's Nicole Kirkhoff, whose recent paper titled The Gut Microbiome Correlates with Conspecific Aggression in a Small Population of Rescued Dogs was recently published in Pure J. Nicole, you were listening in earlier as I was talking with my other guests. Can I introduce you to? Yes. Nicole, this is tropical ecologist Dale Forrester. And Dale, this is microbiologist Nicole Kirkhoff. Nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you. Maybe I can begin this conversation by mentioning again that both of you are recently coming off of your first ever first authorships, and both of your studies have gotten well, quite a bit of attention. How does it feel to have gotten such a strong start? I would say it's quite a surprise. I'm new to this process, but it's an exciting one. Yeah, I'm really excited, and Dale, congrats. Uh, this is really a big milestone um, for PhD students, I think. And honestly, I'm just really relieved that I was able to put it all together and get it published. And I'm actually really appreciative of all the attention it's gotten, because I think 
you know, a lot of work went into this. And so it just feels good to kind of come out on the other side and have people appreciate the work that you've done. Absolutely. Do you guys worry a little bit that, I almost hate to say this, like, do you worry that you might have peaked? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. I mean, I think uh, Nicole had said it exactly right that, you know, it's a very long process and at some point in the writing and in the study, it seems like there's no hope that you're going to get there. So now I guess this is a little bit more confidence. So hopefully the next time it'll be easier. Maybe, maybe not. Sometimes I worry that I've peaked at least in public interest because I think my paper specifically, you know, it's about dogs and folks are really interested in dogs. But I don't know. I think I'm confident that I think I can sort of push on and become even better at articulating my ideas and testing them. But yeah, in terms of recognition or, you know, appreciation or acknowledgement, I do wonder, yeah, at what point that might end. Nicole, your study brings up all kinds of questions. I've been watching Dale here scribble feverishly while we were chatting. Dale, what did her study bring up for you? Did you have a question for? One thing I I think both of our studies kind of get at is that it's a very complex world out there and, and nothing acts in isolation. A dog is not just an individual species. It's a community made of tons of microbes and tons of things that it's interacting with. And so I really appreciated that about your study and that it's kind of taking this kind of holistic community view almost. I was just curious, like, how you think these microbes have been acquired by these dogs? Is it something that over the long term we're talking, like, I think breeds have been selected for for many, many years. And do you think that the microbes came along? Have they been evolving all this time with them? Or do you think this is something that, you know, is acquired on a short time scale That's a really good question. So for dogs specifically, we don't know as much about dogs as we do other animals. But for dogs, we know that their gut microbial community is often changed by diet. And if they have certain gastrointestinal conditions, and this is also true for other animals as well. So I would say that humans and mice are pretty well studied when it comes to how might these communities be created and have they manifested? And yeah, one of the hypotheses is that microbes in your gut have been sort of evolving alongside you over millions of years. And there's also some work looking into, you know, how are these bacteria transmitted? Is it a mother to child transmission? There's a good body of research that's really trying to answer these questions. Density dependence isn't just a concept in the world of tropical forests. It's also at play in the endless world of microbes. And you were talking about all these factors that are at play. And I'm wondering, as I was chatting with Dale, if you were thinking as I was about the impact of density dependence on the community of microbes in in the guts of these dogs that you've studied, in the guts of mice, and in the guts of us. I was definitely thinking about that. I think it's really fascinating because a lot of the concepts that Dale were talking about happening on a macro scale could also potentially be happening on a much, much smaller scale and maybe even inside of us. I was just kind of curious if maybe there are certain exceptions to negative density dependence, at least in terms of forests or trees, or if this is a pretty ubiquitous phenomenon in the tree world. 
it's easiest to kind of go down the line of thought of a single species or group of species and, and understand what they're doing. And I think scientists have been doing that extremely well for a long time. And it's at the point of, okay, how do we synthesize this? So, you know, is, is the general rule that microbes tend to compete with each other or do they tend to cooperate in kind of what of those forces are predominant and how do they balance each other out? And the same is true for trees. As I work in the forest and walk around, I always am fascinated at different groups. One of the coolest examples of kind of a different pattern of distribution are these things that are known as devil's gardens. And it's caused by a single species of tree who happens to house um, a, they have domatia, which where they attract ants. And these ants, they're known as lemon ants. If you've ever gotten a chance to eat them, they taste exactly like lemons. It's a really cool interaction in which the ants live inside the tree and then they go down and they actually clean the forest floor, killing off any other species uh, of saplings as, or kind of seedlings as they sprout. And why they're called devil's gardens is just because when you're walking through a dense jungle of all these different species and you come into this clearing, it's kind of eerie. It kind of almost seems like a cursed part of the forest. So there's examples of these types of interactions that go totally against our ideas of negative density dependence. And the jury's still out as, you know, which dominates the forest, which creates this diversity. That sounds really interesting. And I was also thinking about in sort of the tree world, do you consider diversity to generally be a good thing? Because I think we, at least in, you know, the gut microbiome world, that's sort of the general sense that, especially in these, some of these studies where you're looking at, say, healthy individuals and what's their gut bacteria like look like in some diseased individuals. Generally, you see higher diversity in those that are healthy. Of course, there are a lot of exceptions. So I was just curious as to what you think about that. I think generally that's the consensus. There's some data to support that a more diverse forest is more productive. It has it increases carbon sequestration, overall increases ecosystem services. If we think that trees and, and, and plants in general are kind of the um, base of our ecosystem, so the more diverse of a community you have, the more fruits that might be available for different species that are going to feed on them. As biologists, I think we're kind of obsessed with the idea that diversity is important, but there's also a lot of reasons why. I can't help but moralize a little bit here. Diversity in microbial communities seems to be really important. Diversity in forest communities seems to be important. And of course, we know that diversity in our communities is important as well. Uh, and it's a sign of a healthy community. We're just about out of time. Dale Forrester, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Yeah, thank you for having me. And Nicole Kirkhoff, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tussaud. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>